Okay, this is Professor Deming, and I am recording your study guide information for your second test. This is only for the Monday, Wednesday, and Monday, Wednesday, Friday sections for exam two. It looks like the test will be somewhere between the 12th and the 20th of October, although I'm not entirely sure right now. I will let you know in class. But I wanted to go through the study guide with you and give you some specific things to be sure and study. The first thing on the study guide says depressants, stimulants, opiates, and hallucinogens. You want to know what those are. Of course, depressants are going to be things that slow down your system. Stimulants are going to be things that speed it up. Opiates are generally prescribed for pain and have both depressant and stimulant effects. And hallucinogens, of course, cause you to see mind manifesting things that aren't there. I would also know examples of those. For example, um, different depressants are things like alcohol, benzodiazepines and barbiturates, stimulants would be caffeine and nicotine, opiates would be morphine and methadone, and hallucinogens would be things like PCP as well as marijuana in larger doses. The second thing is shaping. Shaping is actually from the learning chapter, and it has to do with successive approximation of behavior. So if you want to teach a mouse, for example, to play basketball, you can't just put it on the court and get it to go. What you need to do is you put it on the court and the first time it touches the ball, you reinforce that. Then you do that again. As it gets closer to the goal, you reinforce it again, usually with food. And you slowly shape the behavior into something that's not really natural for the mouse, but it will do to get the food reinforcement. That's what shaping is. Number three is implicit and explicit memory from chapter seven. These are actually just what they sound like. Implicit memory is going to be anything that's unconscious. So for example, riding a bike or tying your shoes, it's not something that's real easy to verbalize, but it is something that you know. Explicit memory has two types. It's going to be declarative and non-declarative. Um, those are going to be like facts and figures as well as episodic type memories. Anything you can actually tell someone and those things are absolutely conscious in nature. Number four is social learning. Social learning is just basically mocking or patterning your behavior after behavior you see in a social situation. Number five, the Bobo doll experiment. That was something that basically used that inflatable clown doll to show that children will absolutely copy behavior they see in adults and that they will also be less likely to do that behavior if they see someone else punished for it. It doesn't mean they'll always stop the behavior, but it means they're less likely to do it. That was the second part of his experiment that, you know, you don't have to totally have the consequences put upon you yourself, but you can see someone else punished for something and learn from that as well. That's the idea with the application behind the death penalty. The death penalty does not assume that person will then learn that murder is wrong. It assumes that other people will be less likely to murder. Number six is Thorndike. Thorndike was the person behind the lob effect which very simply is just that if something is rewarded, you're more likely to do it. It has a good outcome, you're more likely to repeat it. If it's punished, you're less likely to do it. 
and that's your basic hedonism okay um number seven episodic or autobiographical memory autobiographical memory is basically anything that is an episode of your life you can tell for example i can tell you about my college graduation I had to stand outside in the sun for about two hours to line up. It took a very long time. I was getting really hot because the rows were black. You get the idea. It's just like an episode of a TV show and it's in first person. That's the important thing about episodic memory. I can tell you what I was doing, how I felt, and things along those lines. Autobiographical memory is also made up of semantic parts. Semantic is basically facts and figures, like I can tell you that the robe was black, that it was in the spring, that it was above 90 degrees outside. Those are all facts and figures, but they're not related to a specific episode. Episodic, of course, is that episode, and autobiographical is the totality of the two. Number eight, a conditioned stimulus. This is basically being able to recognize examples of classical conditioning and all the different parts that we covered in class or will cover in class of Pavlov's experiment. So anytime you are pairing two things that don't usually go together, such as a bell and food, um, initially you have the natural response, which is you have a neutral stimulus such as a bell. The bell initially means absolutely nothing to the dog. Then you have food, which is a normal natural stimulus that evokes the response of salivation, okay? Um, that would be your unconditioned stimulus, the food, and an unconditioned response, the salivation, okay? Conditioning, of course, just means learning. So if we pair the unconditioned stimulus with the neutral stimulus over and over, eventually we learn that the bell means food, okay? After conditioning has occurred, we call that the conditioned stimulus. The conditioned stimulus is the one we have learned about, which is going to be the bell, and the conditioned response will be salivation in response to the bell. The response remains the same from conditioning and also in the unconditioned situation, okay? Number nine, prescription drug use in the United States. Um, what you basically need to know about that is that prescription drugs are basically just as scary as illegal drugs when they're not prescribed for you or used in ways that they're not supposed to be. And the abuse of prescription drugs has gone up quite a bit in people over the years, especially younger people. We see a lot of overdoses with that. And they don't, of course, have to be their own drugs. A lot of people think just because they're prescriptions, it means they're safe, and that's just not the case. Number 10 was Thorndike's experiment. That's the one where he put the cats in the boxes and they had to learn to escape. And basically he assumed that they were learning because over time they took less and less time to escape from the box. So just back to that definition of learning that's behavioral, we know that we see a semi-permanent or permanent change in behavior or change in the time it takes to do the behavior. Therefore, we're assuming learning has occurred. Number 11, the orienting reflex is basically the idea of when I slammed the book on the desk 
and everyone turned their head. That is going to be that we're much more sensitive to a new stimulus that enters our environment, such as someone walking past the door, someone loading the Coke can machine in the class, or me slamming my book down, than something that's already going on in class, such as me talking, which is all the time, or people rustling papers or typing, which also is constantly in the background. Okay. Number 12, stage one sleep, is going to be your alpha sleep. You only enter stage one generally once in the night, and that's your general kind of relaxed state. Um, in terms of that, you feel like you're relaxed but somewhat awake, but it's also the state you're in when you are hypnotized, okay? But you see that alpha wave during that. Now, you also have REM sleep, which is kind of the opposite of that. It's what replaces that first stage of sleep when you go back through the cycle. So the order of the cycle, of course, starts off stage one, then you go deeper into stage two, into deep sleep stage three, and deeper stage four. Then you come back up three, two, and instead of going into one, you go into REM sleep. REM sleep is rapid eye movement sleep. And what we see in that is that your muscles should be very relaxed, but your brain activity looks basically like you're awake. And this is generally when you're dreaming. You do have some dreaming in your deep stage sleep, or I should say it occurs in all stages of sleep, but it's not as common as it is in REM. That's also why you're usually dreaming right before you wake up because you're just outside of that coming into being awake state. Number 13, circadian rhythms. These are your light dark cycles. And they did some experiments on these early on to see what would happen if we took away the light dark cues and had people live in caves. And they found that they tend to actually stay on around a 24, 25 hour schedule, even without those cues for long periods of time. So we don't necessarily need to have them fully to benefit from those rhythms, okay? Circadian rhythms are also what is basically messed up anytime you experience jet lag. Moving on, number 14, the three-stage model of memory. Okay, the three-stage model of memory is pretty simple. You have your sensory memory, okay? That's going to include iconic and echoic memory. Iconic being your snapshot of visual memory and echoic being anything you've just heard. It's going to be auditory. The second part of that will, of course, be short-term memory or working memory. And then the third part would be long-term memory, which is where you, of course, want to get things if you want to remember them through, for example, an exam. Okay. Number 15, law of effect. Again, we talked about this already. This is Thorndike's thing. If good things happen, you're likely to repeat a behavior. If bad things happen, you're less likely to actually repeat that. Number 16 is going to be generalization and discrimination. Um, this is a classical conditioning type term, okay? It applies in classical conditioning situations. Generalization is when you respond to similar stimuli. So in Pavlov's experiment, he used a bell. Well, that bell was of a certain tone, and early on, dogs would respond to any bell. 
but when he started doing bell of a certain tone, such as the tone C or the note C, pretty soon the dogs would also learn that it was only C and they stopped responding on the other notes because they weren't being fed then. That's discrimination. It's treating something differently even though it's kind of similar. Moving on to number 17, Korsakov syndrome. This is from chapter four. We watched a couple of videos on this and it's basically a memory disorder that's linked to alcoholism, but also linked to nutritional deficiency, mainly from lack of vitamin B1, which is also called thiamine. You also see it in people who have uh, anorexia or bulimia at times, although that's a little easier to correct because once you fix the nutrition problem, you generally can fix the memory issue before it becomes permanent. We don't usually see that in the Korsakoff syndrome or Wernicke's Korsakoff syndrome with people who have severe alcoholism. Number 18, Little Albert. Little Albert was the baby that they tried to classically condition. They fear conditioned him. And uh, originally he wasn't afraid of any animals. He wasn't afraid of a rat or a dog or a cat. And then what they did was they paired a white rat with a really loud noise over and over again. And it startled him and it absolutely scared him. And uh, pretty soon he was absolutely terrified of white rats. It also generalized to white rabbits and white dogs and really anything furry. So it showed you could fear condition a human. Number 19, marijuana. Marijuana, of course, is a drug that is a Schedule One drug in the United States still currently because, well, federal drug law governs that and the DEA makes those schedules. Um, marijuana is considered a hallucinogen. It's also considered a depressant, but it's probably the most widely used still illegal substance in the United States. The most widely used legal substance, of course, is caffeine. Number 20, classical and operant conditioning. We've talked about these in some of the other questions. Classical conditioning, of course, is just the pairing of stimulus and response. Operant conditioning is your basic parenting, positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement, positive punishment, and negative punishment. Number 21, methadone. Methadone is an opiate. They tend to use it in people who have been on heroin. The reason we give out methadone is it keeps people from going into withdrawal, but it also doesn't have as tense of a high, so it's not quite as addictive. It's not necessarily what you would call a drug of choice, but it is something that will get people by without getting them too ill. Number 22, the serial position effect. The serial position effect or serial position curve is from chapter seven. It has to do with memory. Um, it looks like a U basically. And it turns out that, you know, the three stage model of memory, you have your sensory memory, your short term memory and your long term memory. And the reason it looks like a U is that when you're given a list of items, say a grocery list of 12 things, you're most likely to remember the first things in the list as well as the last things in the list. The first things are considered a primacy effect and the last things are considered a recency effect. 
The things that are first in the list have already had time to encode into long-term memory. The things that are last in the list are actually still in short-term memory and therefore never make it out. That's why you remember those. They're the most recent to you. Number 23, spontaneous recovery. This is basically something we see in classical conditioning when, for example, you have paired a bell with food over and over, but then you decide to extinguish that response. You extinguish that response by presenting the bell on its own with no food, and pretty soon the animal will stop responding. It catches on. But spontaneous recovery is basically saying that those rules are back in play. You don't unlearn the association between the bell and the food. You just know it doesn't work anymore. But if again we start pairing the bell with the food, pretty quickly you're going to spontaneously recover that salivation response. In fact, it's going to be quicker than it was the last time. So it's not considered relearning, it's called recovery of the response. It's basically telling you that those rules are back in play and it's a very quick learning curve that's much steeper than the first one. Number 24, Pavlov's research. In Pavlov's study, he basically had all the different parts that make up classical conditioning. He was originally a, a gastrointestinal type doctor. He wasn't even a psychologist and he was studying salivation in dogs and you know, measuring what they salivated to. Um, make sure you know basically what the conditioned stimulus, the unconditioned stimulus, the conditioned response, the unconditioned response, and the neutral stimulus were in his studies. That's what's going to be on the test. Number 25, sleep and genetics. Um, it seems that the more genetically similar we are, the more likely we are to have similar sleeping patterns. For example, siblings that have insomnia are more likely to have insomnia, especially if those siblings are, say, identical twins. Moving on, number 26. Um, let's see. Uh, constructive and reconstructive memory. Memory is both constructive and reconstructive. It's constructive in the fact that we fill in gaps we don't know. It's reconstructive in the fact that it takes different parts from all over the brain to put it together to make a memory, such as color and taste and touch and feel and smell and all those things to then put together to make memory. So it's not just a recording necessarily, okay? Um, one thing we do to help fill in those missing details, sometimes it's called chunking. Chunking's a way to get more information in our brain. For example, it's uh, usually very common to be able to remember about seven plus or minus two things. That was George Miller's classic study. He found that people can remember around seven things without forgetting them, which is actually why phone numbers used to be just seven digits. But it turns out we can chunk things together. So when it comes to phone numbers, we tend to chunk them in three parts the area code, the prefix, and then the last four digits. So for example, when I was younger, my phone number was 651-226-2865. That would be considered three items rather than, for example, let's see, seven, eight, nine, 10 items. 
Sorry, I'm having a bad counting day. Let's see, the next one is going to be physical and behavioral withdrawal effects, okay? Um, withdrawal is both physical and behavioral. The physical comes from the tissue dependence in the body. The behavioral comes from just basically altering how you feel, thus changing your behavior. Um, but withdrawal, of course, includes both of those. Okay, moving on, number 28, implicit memory. Again, these are things like tying your shoes or riding a bike. They're very kind of ingrained in procedural type tasks. Number 29 is jet lag. That's the disruption of circadian rhythm that happens when you travel, usually by airplane. And when you go backwards, it's particularly hard. Number 30, what is basically declarative memory? Well, declarative memory, of course, is a type of explicit memory. You have declarative and non-declarative. Declarative, of course, is something you can tell me, right? It's explicit memory. You can explicitly tell me what it is, okay? Number 31, treatment for insomnia. Generally, one of the main things that they suggest in terms of treatment for insomnia or going to bed at the same time every night, not doing work while sitting on your bed, which is actually something I'm doing right now. And, you know, basically only using your bed for sleep. When you get in your bed, you go to sleep. That's actually a learning principle. If you learn that your bed means sleep, you're more likely to not thrash around and take a long time to fall asleep. It's after that that they only then move on to things like melatonin or prescription type meds to help you sleep. Number 32, PCP, um, of course, is a hallucinogen and is a pretty nasty drug. It tends to give people some hallucinations as well as sometimes superhuman strength and they tend to overheat. Um, in the U.S., it is not legal at all. It is a Schedule One drug, so you can't make it, you can't sell it, and definitely do not be caught using it. Number 33 is going to be variable ratio schedules. I know these are a little harder, um, but remember ratio has to do with the number of times a response happens, okay? Interval has to do with the time since something has happened. Variable means on average. For example, you reinforce a behavior on average every six times it happens or every five times. A fixed ratio schedule, for example, would be every single time because it's fixed. Okay, variable is just say on average every five times. So you reinforce it the third time, you reinforce it the 10th time, you reinforce it the seventh time, but it's on average. It's kind of hard to predict that and we tend to see a very steep curve with that. Okay, number 34, working memory versus the three-stage model. The three-stage model of memory I've already talked about it's a very serial sort of thing, basically one thing at a time. You have your sensory memory, then something moves to short-term memory, then it moves to long-term memory. It's a step theory. Um, working memory model has several different moving parts that all work together or work in parallel at the same time. 
So your working memory has different parts, like the visual spatial sketch pad, basically how you see things in space or know what direction things are. It also has your phonological loop where you rehearse things, which is probably what you're doing with some of your vocabulary terms as you learned for the test. And those two things can actually be done at the same time. So it's more of a parallel processor than a serial processor. Okay. Um, number 35, positive punishment versus negative punishment. I'm sure you're tired of this by now. But punishment, of course, is when basically you're trying to get someone to decrease a behavior or something negative happens to decrease a behavior. And when I say negative, I mean it has a negative outcome. So someone is mean to you, therefore you're less likely to do that again. That of course would be positive punishment because they're doing something to you. Anytime you're putting something into that situation, like a spanking, that's going to be positive punishment. A negative punishment is going to be removal of something. One of the examples we used in class was basically removal of privileges, removing someone's cell phone, removing their computer, removing their Wi-Fi password as a punishment for something. That's negative punishment. So be able to recognize examples of those. Number 36, hallucinogens. Basically just know what drugs go in that category. PCP, LSD, marijuana, all hallucinogens, even though some of those do vary on dose. Number 37, be able to recognize examples of what an unconditioned stimulus and neutral stimulus is. Unconditioned just means before learning, it's something you will condition. Um, a neutral stimulus is just something that means nothing to you currently. For example, the bell meant nothing to Pavlov's dogs early on, but once you paired it with something, it became the conditioned stimulus. So it goes from being neutral to conditioned, okay? Unconditioned just means conditioning has not happened yet, but it will, okay? Number 38 is extinction. I think I've already talked about this, but extinction is basically when you stop responding to a stimulus because, well, you're not being rewarded for it anymore. It's presenting the bell over and over without actually the food again. So you stop responding. One other thing you want to know is going to be habituation, right? That kind of goes along with the same thing. I gave the example of airplanes flying over your house. When you first move in, that's really annoying. But as it goes on, you stop responding to it. It stop bo stops bothering you so much. That's going to be habituation. You stop responding. You've habituated to that stimulus, okay? Number 39 is the hippocampus. We have talked about this before, and it's going to be important in memory, okay? Usually, it's going to be important for anything you've just done, like what you did when you first got up this morning, um, things along those lines, just basic explicit memories like what route did you take to work? What did you have for breakfast? Those types of memories, making those new memories, okay? Number 40 is semantic encoding, which is basically taking information you already know, such as say your multiplication tables, okay? 
we can know that 3 times 5 is 35, but we might not necessarily have an episodic memory of learning that. It's basic, I would say, facts and nuts and bolts knowledge, but you don't necessarily have a first-person memory of it, okay? So semantic encoding, generally, getting that to long-term memory takes multiple types of practice, like you would practice multiplication tables, or also how you might practice your vocabulary. So that's all I have for the exam. If you have any questions, be sure to come by my office hours. I have eight office hours a week, and so far this semester I have seen three students. I would like to see the rest of you at some point. I am here to help you, and the person that's going to be most familiar with how to help you on my exams is going to be me. So please take advantage of that if you have time and want to help. I would be happy to help you. If you have any questions, you may also email me. Also, let me know if you have any trouble with the practice exams or going over the quizzes, which I will post after the last quizzes due in MindTap. Other than that, I wish you the best and have a great week.